Hi everyone, and today I have an Australian legend, um, an iconic treasure of our country, Sir Peter Cosgrove, who's here uh, with me to talk about his new book, and I'm so excited to have him on the program. Um, I've, I've increased my governor generals that I've interviewed to one, and um, and hopefully that'll that'll keep growing over the years. And and before I before I we get into conversation, um, I just want to say a, a few words of background about about Sir Peter. He's uh, he's been along with his wife Lynn served as the 26th Governor General of the Commonwealth of Australia. He was knighted in 2014 when he was sworn into that role. Following his retirement in 2019, Sir Peter was further honoured as the Commander of the Royal Victorian Order by Her Majesty of the Queen. He is widely known for his early career in, in, in the military and the Australian Defence Force, serving in Malaysia and Vietnam before coming to great public prominence as the commander of Interfair in East Timor. He, he has recently retired and I hardly call it a retirement because he's gone on now to, to chair the Business Council of Australia's Community Rebuilding Initiative following the 2019 and 2020 bushfires. Not much of a retirement uh, for most of us, but probably for Sir Peter, it is a retirement. And uh, he's been married to his wife, Lynn, since 1976. They've got three sons, three young grandchildren, and he's finally finished his latest book. And it's out very shortly, although you may be listening to this after it's already out, because October 27 and today, um, we're just in a few days away from its release. And, and we welcome you to the program, Sir Peter. Thank you. Well, g'day to you, Tony, the CEO of Booktopia. I'm delighted to be here and to be talking with you about my book and any other matters you want to talk about. But I wanted to do a shout out to all the followers, the customers, the staff of Booktopia to say to you all that this book, You Shouldn't Have Joined, that's uh, short for You Shouldn't Have Joined If You Couldn't Take a Joke, is, I think, a lighthearted but sometimes serious uh, account of my life. A boy from Pado who rose through the ranks of the military, commanded the Defence Force and became the Governor General. Uh, it's a story uh, of yarns. In each case, I talk about uh, those parts of my life. I talk about prime ministers and presidents and kings and queens, visits to other nations, challenges for Australia, disasters, and all of the things that happen in the wide brown land. So I know that customers of Booktopia buy a book every 10 seconds. So I'm saying to you all, jump on the Booktopia bus and please buy my book because I think you'll like it. Good on you. That's so great. And I mean, I think, I mean, that's a real pitch, isn't it? But crikeys, I mean, you have done what people would normally do in about 23 lifetimes, Sir Peter. When you think back and you kind of even had to condense all of those experiences, I'm sure uh, on the cutting room floor, there is a whole bunch of the others that never made the final, the final, um, you know, draft and, and the, the final copy that you that you ended up producing. But uh, Tony, you would know because you have been so busy since you created this this very large and growing entity. Uh, how how quickly time goes by, and I would say that all of those exciting and uh, and really uh, memorable things that I 
managed to do in my life, they all seem to flash by. I mean, I can remember when my kids were little ones and now uh, the youngest is pushing 40. Uh, and it, that just seems to have gone by in a flash. Um, and it's so important that you, you try to remember and fix the, the trials, the learnings, the good times, don't forget the bad times, learn from those. But here I am now in my 70s. I still feel fantastic. I still feel very energetic and much younger than I'm entitled to feel. Uh, and I think that's because I've been so fortunate in having some tremendously interesting jobs, including struggling to be a good father and husband. <laughs> yes, well, I was thinking about that. You know, like, I mean, obviously, Booktopia has been hugely successful. But if someone was to, you know, to introduce me, you know, he's the founder and CEO of Booktopia. There's kind of like, you know, I've got, I've got like one Himalaya, I guess, in my, in my life and in my career, in terms of my professional life, of course, family is a whole different story, as you know, but, but you just seem to have a whole, you know, Himalayan range. I mean, you've done so many different things. It's, it must be, must be hard to even consider or to think that, that you've accomplished so many high ranking and leadership roles in, in very different dominions, not just the military, not just in, in commerce and in, and in business, but also in government. I mean, it's astonishing, really. Well, I, I think part of the trick, if I can say so, is to have um, harnessed ambition. Never get ahead of yourself. I mean, for, I've operated in the, in the tram tracks, if you like, of the Defence Force. Started from school, stayed in for 40 and a half years. And in that time, I did a lot of jobs and went to a lot of places. But instead of saying, oh, I've got my horizon set on being the chief of the Defence Force, uh, it never, at no stage did I ever say, uh, I've, got to, I've got to get to the next promotion. Uh, the way I tried to do it was to say, what am I doing now? Let's, I'll try to do this to the best degree possible. And then if I get promoted, well, that would be lovely. But if I'm not, I know I'm giving it my best shot in the job I'm doing now. And for me, that worked. Um, and the other thing, you've got to back yourself. So when I did get the next job, and sometimes the, the next job might have been a little humdrum along the way, you think, well, okay, it's a necessary job. It's not that glamorous. I'll just do it. And then somebody says, oh, he did that well, let's give him another go. And the next one is very stimulating. The ones I loved were when I was promoted into jobs where I had lots of men and women of the armed forces to have to care for. It just appealed to my nature to have responsibility for the welfare and the success of people. And others, may like, you know, uh, something technical or they might like something which is uh, uh, blue sky, far horizons, um, uh, more scientific. I like to sleeves up with people. To me, that was just uh, butte. When I finished in the Defence Force, I'd commanded at 13 different levels. So ever increasing numbers of people. And some may say, what's well, a bit daunting because you you're up against uh, rough times sometimes. I wouldn't have exchanged any of the rough times for the honour and the thrill 
of being with people and watching them absolutely tear into their tasks and produce these stunning successes. It's, you, you, you'd pay a lot of money just to stand in the corner and watch them do it. To be involved with them and to actually be able to embrace them and say, you've played a blinder, was, was all the job satisfaction you could ever want. That produced a bloke who came out of the military uh, having thought, what a roller coaster, what a brilliant ride. And then the governor generalship, well, that basically was handed over by a prime minister who thought, well, he's well known to the public. He could probably do this job. Uh, he's well thought of. So let's ask him to do the job. And it took me about a femtosecond, a nanosecond to say, um, Prime Minister, I'll do it. But I did say to Tony Abbott, do you mind if I just get back to you tomorrow? Because I thought that wonderful woman who's put up with me for over 40 years, well, coming up to 40 years then, uh, would probably like to have just a little think. And you know, I phoned her and she said, oh, well, let's go. We can do that. So you have to put the, you have to say to the Prime Minister, I'm sure every Prime Minister is, as someone has said, yes, I'll do it without even consulting their better half. And you obviously um, were, were wiser to the fact, I guess when you're, when you're in the military, it's a, it's a team effort. You can't, you can't just go off and say, I'm going to do that without the, the agreement of, of, you, of your spouse. The spouse is, uh, we have this cynical saying, which probably is beyond the Defence Force, but we use it in the Defence Force. Lots of men and women who get to senior rank have a long-suffering family partner, the partner uh, there, and kids often, and they get often overlooked. I mean, everybody focuses on the person in uniform. So we have this saying, buy one, get one free. <laughs> and that's the supporting person without whom you'd be frustrated, angry, depressed, unfulfilled. Uh, you'd have difficulties at home. It's... Uh, there are sadly, of course, in stressful environments like the emergency services and the, and the Defence Force, more uh, breakdowns in family situations than you'd imagine. And it's understandable. Where it works, boy, oh boy, uh, is the uniformed person, the emergency services worker, lucky. So just out of curiosity, having never... I mean, very few. You are the 26th Governor-General of Australia. Um, does it come with actually a, like a job description that you needed to read and go, um, you know, you've got to perform this and these are your duties, these are your KPIs? Does it have anything like that or is it just like make it what you will? Uh, the Constitution of Australia and there are a few scholarly works about uh, uh, what Governors-General have been seen and known to do in the past, um, and that's about it. Uh, I had the good fortune to be an ADC to the Governor-General back in 1972. So I got, uh, uh, understandably, a shallow insight because I was a young army captain and I saw the protocol and I knew the Governor-General and family uh, and I saw the VIPs coming and going and I got to meet them all and all the rest. That took away a, a layer of apprehension, but there is no primer, there's no textbook uh, about what a Governor-General should do 
beyond the black letter uh, law in the constitution. And even that has been debated and sometimes disputed uh, over our recent past. I just have to point back to 1975, the Governor General's actions in uh, the dismissal uh, have been endlessly debated and will be. Uh, um, and uh, so you, you, you have to go in with a, 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 an absolute conviction that you will consult and strive to understand both the broad political situation, the arguments for courses of action, and bounce them off the Constitution, and be prepared to take advice, not necessarily from uh, the Prime Minister or the Government or the Leader of the Opposition, but from the Commonwealth's law officers. Mm. Very, it's a very, um, it's a, it, it's a really leveraging off your intuition and life experience in many ways, and and I guess that's you know that's what we're looking for in the role um, in terms of the Australian community. And um, I know you write about it in the book. I see it at the end. I won't give anything away. I never like to give anything away about you know what's in a book, but you talk about um, a republic versus being part of the Commonwealth. So um, I think people want to be interested in in that. I'm I'm curious though. Just transitioning, I mean, for that many decades in the military, was it difficult for you to transi transition out of the military into, because you've had some corporate roles, you've been in other government roles and, and in councils, et cetera. What, was it difficult or like, are you sitting there going, oh my God, these people are operating so slow, like get your act together, are we, uh, or are we more efficient in common? What was your experience about about dealing with um, non-military personnel? Well, there is no doubt that in my earlier and mid-career in the military, I was very much, uh, well, I would have been more of a stereotype that, you know, uh, looking for instant action, here's the, the way ahead, don't muck about, get stuck in, uh, do, it, do it yesterday, all that stuff. But as you get more senior in the military, you have to become much more consultative and much more integrated with wider government. And, you know, that's a, there's a very large public service. And they are not only hugely professional, but they are of their culture. And you, you understand, with that, uh, understand that and you cope with it. Um, so I became, as a senior officer, uh, much more uh, anticipatory of how things would have to flow. The other thing I did learn as a senior military guy is what government, how governments work, not just the bureaucrats, but the, the political government. So, and, and that has its own set of learnings for a person who's not a politician and never would be one. I was asked a couple of times to be in the parliament and I said, not, not on your nelly, because I, I, I knew enough about that life to say that is really, really hard. Not as hard as life and death decisions that a military officer might make, Hard in other ways, hard in other ways. Who do you trust? Uh, how do you keep consistency? How do you keep that elastic band back to your uh, electors and your constituents? How do you keep that strong and useful? All that stuff. How do you keep faith? All, so I learned a, a bit about that. And then I went to corporate life and that was more smoothing. I was on the Qantas board. One stage I was on 11 boards, too many too many boards, but I, I had uh, all of this corporate uh, 
involvement, which was with a cross-section of the wider community. By the time I got to be Governor-General, there was none of this, uh, you know, do this immediately and uh, you know, my way or the highway or anything like that. Uh, I, I, I'd learnt and behaved in a much more embracing way. And I think that's what Governor-Generals have to do. You do not want a sort of petty dictator strutting around as Governor-General. Mm. You, you were very... Um According to the the um, your book, you talk about um, you you were very particular about the photo on the front cover. For those that will get to see it, um, you're in a very I mean you're you're in full regalia, but the smile and the joy on your face, and also the people behind you. Yeah. But when I, not only when you you look at the front cover, but when I look at the photos on the back and then the photos within the book, there's a lot of joy. There's a, like you're actually like it seemed like that was very purposeful for you in terms of not being there in a in a stern or military kind of state. Just talk about why. What was is there something about the essence of this book that um, that you wanted to convey through the front cover and then through through those pictures? Certainly, you've picked out something which was to me almost the. Uh, organising principle or the spirit of the book. I wanted to convey a sense of optimism and joy and pride at being an Australian who happened to get these marvellous opportunities which gave me an unparalleled uh, chance to visit the country, visit the community, to understand the some of the essential features of our great nation. Uh, it was, uh, I, I couldn't imagine a, a greater capstone to my life, much less my career, than to have that opportunity. The photo, I think we can talk about the photo because I'm hoping uh, Booktopia customers will see it and will say, oh yes, I recognise that. You're right, that's me, old, portly, you know, portly's a I'm getting fat and I'm in my uniforms full of metals and it's got braid all over it. And that's my last appearance in uniform in the middle of 2019, back at my military alma mater, the Royal Military College Duntroon. Big parade, cadets out on there. They're doing marvellous drill. It's one of those ceremonial events where you your heart sings to see these kids who are about to become Australia's newest army officers. And some of them in that photograph are kids from overseas who are going to go back as officers to their army. So it's just a little snapshot of the sort of brilliant young Australians and others who are at our, that college. They happen to be in the same cadet subunit called Kokoda Company that I was in when I was there in a, as a cadet uh, 50 something years ago. So they wanted a photograph with their, their sort of eminent alumnus who, to, to put up on their wall. So standing there out in front, some young fella made a funny joke, the, standing near the photographer, and we all burst into laughter. And when I saw the photograph, I, I have to have that. That's going to be on the cover because it's a sort of uh, worm-to-term type uh, uh, pictorial story. And I think it reflects 
joy. So much about being a military person and a military leader is grim. You have to have optimism, good humour, and a, a sort of a, a determination to bring things back to normal, uh, to resolve situations. And, and, and you don't want to lose that. If you become a misery gut, sorry to be sort of a, a little sort of flippant in that regard. If you, if you become a misery guts, a life's not really worth living. I am an eternal optimist. We'll get through coronavirus. We'll resolve issues we have with uh, our international relations. We will uh, bring uh, Indigenous Australians into the embrace of the whole country in a way which gives them appropriate and dignity and recognition. We'll do all that. This, this country cannot be beaten. Mm. Hear, hear. I, I'm an optimist as well, and I agree wholeheartedly with that. So this is, a, is this your second? I mean, I know you've got the book, My Story, that came out in 2007. Yeah. Um, is this your second book, or have you written others as well? I think, uh, no, I've, I've, I've penned a few fictional yarns, but they remain just that. It's difficult to produce for a readership fictional yarns which go to my strengths, which is security operations and wars and things, and then you pen your name to it and they say, well, that's the ex-Governor-General or the ex-CDF wrote that. This must be true. And you go, oh, how do I say, no, no, it's just, you know, it's a, a fellow with a, a big imagination writing down fictional stuff. So they, they will stay in the memory bank. I did, um, I thought I'd emptied uh, the tank, Tony, with my earlier book, because that happened at the end of my time in the military. There's no suggestion I'd have a further public life. But then there was the disaster operation after Cyclone Larry, the boards, they, oh, Qantas, you can imagine all the stuff with Qantas, safety incidents, industrial action, um, some other stuff. And then the, the crowning moment or five years of being Governor General, I thought I have to, I, I started to think somebody ought to write about that. And then I thought, well, I'll write about that. I'm not too sure how many Governors General have sat down and written a book a bit like mine. I think some of them are very serious and they've been very informative, but I've tried to make mine absorbing and informing uh, but I don't want people to fall asleep with it on their chest. <laughs> so, are we going to get an insight into into what it's what it's like in uh, in that kind of life, and so the kind of people that you're meeting, the situations that you end up in, uh, and because most of us will never get to be um, at the, you know in those rooms, in those conversations, and in those moments. Is that is that you've kind of given us a little of a peek inside the world of that of of what you've had to do? I hope I've established in the book that the person having these experiences was an ordinary Aussie from a working class suburb who you know found to his amazement and delight that kept getting these increasingly prominent jobs. But it is a tale of the de facto head of state of Australia doing things with presidents and prime ministers and popes and kings and queens, princesses and princes, uh, and uh, thousands, countless thousands of ordinary Australians. So it's, 
it, it does lift the veil on what happens when you're you know, meeting with Xi Jinping or the Pope or the Queen. Uh, the one area where I've been rigorous is never to report verbatim conversations with principals, uh, certainly not with the royal family, because to do so might be exciting, but I want to ensure that I respect the confidence that they showed when we're you know, having a, an informal dialogue. Mm. One, one, one thing that people don't realise, um, and I've come to learn having been in the book industry now for 16 years, is the work that editors and the publishers do to kind of finish off a book and make it, you know, make it a, a complete project. Um, Alan and Unwin is your publisher on this book. Um, did they have a lot to do or did you just give them the manuscript and they had to, you know, a few I's and a few T's or was there a lot of work together to really get it into shape? How did that, how was that for you? Well, I had a magnificent editor, Angela Hanley, a lovely lady and uh, an experience. And uh, I enjoyed the experience immensely. Um, I, I believe uh, this one, because it was uh, crossing so many boundaries of, uh, of different parts of my life, uh, military, or growing up, military, she didn't need to worry too much about that. When we got into the corporate area, well, obviously we needed to check that my accuracy and the, um, the presentational uh, obligations, you know, tell the truth, uh, don't, don't verbal somebody, that sort of stuff, that was all covered. But uh, we, we worked as a team, she and I, over and over again, polishing it. I believe that the editorial participation was hugely value-adding to the book. And, and sometimes we'd have a Barney, but I think uh, we, we always resolve those with goodwill and a better outcome. It's interesting for me when we get a lot of authors wanting to list their books with us and it's self-published and we've got a publishing business now ourselves and you give the author the feedback, needs a lot of work. They don't realise how even the biggest authors in the world, J.K. Rowling and James Patterson and Dan Brown, whoever it might be, they have had a lot of work going on with the editors and with the publishing house to get it into shape. And I, I, th I think that's just anyone that's listening who has got a book in them or thinking, well, you know, if Sir Peter can write a book, boy, I could write one too. I've got a computer. I can just, I've got some time. Um, just remember how important it is to, to think of the team that you need and what you've got to do to get it to that, to that level. Talk about team. Um, one of the things that kind of came through was uh, in this book, and I haven't read it, but I've, you know, jumped around and trying to you know, capture as much as I could, how important your wife has been to you in so many areas in the, and that you, it seems like you haven't taken her for granted at all. Um, and that it is very, you know, your success is not your success. It's, it's our success in terms of you and her and probably your family. Um, is there, is there anything that others that you feel like you've, you've demonstrated perhaps to others about how important that relationship is and, has that have others given you feedback over the years that they've learned from your, you know, I mean, you, you randomly meet someone and you don't know when you meet them that you're going to spend the rest of the life with them and you're going to form a, a great partnership, but you did do that. What, is there any insights that you can share about that relationship? 
Well, it, it is a case of serendipity or good fortune or extreme uh, perception uh, by your other half that this is going to work. Uh, so I'm thinking back to when we met. Uh, she must have had her heart in her mouth at marrying a soldier who wanted to make the military his career. And she might have had an inkling that this would uh, re result in 27 separate homes over time. And that hopefully when kids came along, that she would do the vast majority of the parenting because old Willow the Wisp here was going from A to B to C doing you know, the military job and was sort of a, uh, a dad who checked in rather less frequently than you would hope if you were at a stable, um, stable geographic uh, job. So she took that on and became a, a maternal figure to uh, the people that I was working with. So my soldiers and their families, mm. they loved her. She became the other half of me. So if I was a decent boss, to my military people, they loved her because they they warmed her. She is one of the most gregarious, wise, and sympathetic people you would ever meet. And you know, every time along the way, when I saddled up for something else, I would uh, say to her, "Well, they're going to looks like this is going to happen," and she would say, "Okay, let's go." Um, and you know, uh, some of these uh, uh, jobs have been. A lot of separation. Uh, you know, when I toddled off to Timor, she had to mind the store. Uh, when she was um, having our first child in a hospital in Sydney, I was at her side in the labour ward and I had to take a call. I ducked outside and it was my army boss to say, uh, yeah, how's, how's Lynn's labour going? Oh, yeah, she's fine. She's getting there. And... Um, by the way, you'll be off to the United States in a couple of months' time for a year. So we were taking a newborn to the United States away from Sydney where her parents and extended family, my parents and extended family lived. So uh, I went back into the labour board and said, hey, how are you going? We're going to the States. And just so it's that sort of thing where um, you can't really overstate you can't you can't properly state uh your your dependence on mm. the love and the and the toughness of your spouse so it, um without giving too much away i mean is are you able in the military to to you especially in a kind of a, a strong bond that the two of you had can she be a confidant? Was she able to contribute to your own leadership style? Was she, was she part of um, who you became in terms of, do you feel like, because my wife is a great contributor to who I am. We've been married now for five years, together yeah. for eight. And I know I'm a better leader and a better, better dad and a better, better person because of her. And, um, and uh, I, you know, I, I can't thank her enough. And, and the people that I work with probably can't thank her enough. Is that the same in the military? Did you feel that that kind of worked out the same? Absolutely. In fact, and now I look back, and I, I, I knew this before, but the moment I got married, I actually became a better person 
because I uh, joined a, a large number of people in the military who were over here working hard in the military and all its demands and also trying to be the parent, uh, the other adult in a family. And to me, uh, I started to think about that a lot more when I became married. I was a hard charger before, you know. Uh, let's do it, and, and oh yes, I know this will be long hours and weekends away, but we'll just do it, you see. And um, uh, I started to think, well, you see, there are a way that I can do this, so people trying to be parents and partners to, to each other can you know, have a life. So there's that. Secondly, was she a confidant? Absolutely, but never on uh, military information of a classified nature. Why? Of course I trusted her. Of course I did. I wouldn't burden her with that. Secondly, it is illegal. And thirdly, if there was a leak, I would know it was not from my wife. And she understood that. There's lots of stuff, though, about my job, you know, uh, interpersonal relations and all that sort of thing, workplace stuff, which I, I would cry on her shoulder. And every morning she would sort of dust me off like a kid going out on his scooter and off I'd go again. And in the evening, I'd stumble in the door and she'd say, welcome home, sit down. You know, here's the kids. And, uh, yeah, it was my refuge and my strength. How, how, so, I mean, I know that you guys moved it so long and your kids are moving as well. And, yeah. and, but how much time in the military do you actually, uh, you know, spend uh, in a year away from your actual loved ones? It can be, it can be a little spasmodic. There are jobs where you work from a headquarters and you might deploy interstate or even overseas, but for brief periods. The thing about the headquarters jobs is uh, knock-off is a very flexible. Knock-off might be six o'clock in the evening or midnight. I worked one job where I was working for a very senior officer and I always had to get there before that person. And I would always be there till that person who was a workaholic left because I had to be there to support him. Mm. Uh, that made me have a very long day. This was supposedly, oh, this is a lovely posting because it's a prestigious posting. Oh, and you'll be home every night. But they didn't say you'll be home every night, maybe 11 o'clock. <laughs> so I wasn't much used with the homework. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, yeah. so I, did, I did try and see if I could find, you know, because we all learn from our mistakes there's a lot of things that you know don't work out the way that we want. I, I desperately searched on the internet for probably about oh, four minutes, not a long time, yes. to, to try and you know come up with okay because you come across, um, and I'm in a, from afar as someone who's very accomplished, um, doesn't seem to get ruffled, lots of successes, lots. It's not really you know when you talk when you do Peter Cosgrove reviews or mistakes or blunders it's just you talking about your own blunders and mistakes do you like do you have you got like I, I can really recall a lot of my own you know stuff ups but do you feel like your life has been like one not easy ride because I know that you've had a lot of learnings but but that that you've been able to avoid perhaps you know some of the stuff that John Kerr for example had to deal with there was just a in, in those decisions, he, as the governor general, he, he lived with it and he, he sounds like he stood by his decisions, but um, it doesn't feel like you really were in this, 
had a had the spotlight on you in a in a not a shameful way, but in a way that you were having to really dodge a lot of bullets. Is, is that how it comes? Is that how it feels to you? Well, I'm a connoisseur of my own mistakes, and I've made literally thousands. Maybe I don't know. You make a mistake of one uh, degree or another every day, uh, and the, the the one of the one of the ways to balance this, I find, is to be hypercritical of yourself, but without losing confidence. Hypercritical of yourself and analytical about your mistakes, uh, but then saying, all right, what's the learning? What do I do now? How do I not do that again? Or how do I recover from this mistake? So, you know, lots and lots of mistakes. Egregious mistakes, you're trying to avoid those by uh, being a bit critical and getting better before you get to with your toes on the edge of the cliff of a major major mistake that's what you want to avoid because it's not just catastrophic for you it's catastrophic for other people and the entity with which you hold so um, yeah i made plenty of mistakes uh, and i uh, it's a it's a leader's learning that if you are a leader, you're going to make mistakes. Establish what they are, resolve not to do them again. If you need to uh, fix it up by maybe apologising to a person or uh, correcting something which was inconveniencing people, then do it, do it quickly and forgive yourself. Don't mm. make the bundle. You've got to move on. Uh, moving on without correcting is bad, but moving on without uh, forgiving yourself is worse. Don't so become, so uh, when, if, if you, I mean, th that I feel like over the years of being the leader of in my company or companies, I've been working for myself now for 24 years. Yeah. And I think back how I was in the very beginning, oh my God, it's embarrassing. Uh, to where I am today in terms of all the lessons that you, you get served up and you learn from and you then become very grounded. And when, you know, the proverbial is hitting the fan, it's about whether you're, you're um, level-headed and grounded and can think in, in a firestorm, which I believe I've been able to do. What's, when you hear feedback from people, when they tell you over the years or maybe through the back channels, what do you feel is like you, when you demonstrate what you do and just being yourself, is that the kind of thing that people have said, I really learned a lot from working with Sir Peter because he, he kind of acted this way in a certain environment or he spoke a certain, or he organized himself in a certain way or he dealt with situations. What, what do you think has been the best demonstration of your own leadership style that you feel is kind of you know, brushed off on other people? I hope that uh, when, when uh, you're placed in a position of authority or you assume it, like you've done by creating and now leading the company. So in those situations, uh, you should be confident to assume the authority and exude that confidence when you're talking to others. It doesn't mean that you're pointing, shouting, demanding. That's, that it's just what is apparent, though, that you know what you're doing. And people can take confidence, the boss knows. Or the boss is the best person to solve this problem. When I got to Timor, 
Of course, things were in play. So many things could go wrong, but my demeanour had to be, we've organised this, we're well-trained, um, I, I, I'm confident that if you do your job and I do my job, this is, we'll do this. So, And I wanted that to permeate the force. I wanted it to translate from my Australians to the 21 other nations who were participating with troops. I wanted them to be able to say, you know, these Aussies are pretty good and their boss seems to know what he's doing. And the job's half done because they're all using the, shot, the song sheet of your confidence to sing from rather than saying, oh, no, this is disorganised. He doesn't seem to know what he's doing. And it needs to translate to the media. In, I'm talking Timor still. And it needs to translate to the government because they're on tenderhooks. How's this going to go? They needed to say, I think he's got it organised. This is good. We're going well. So for the leader to uh, exude uh, confidence and competence are paramount. Mm. I reckon I try and learn as much as I can when I do these um, these sessions with, with authors who are generally, um, I don't get fictional um, books. I get people who have got experience in certain things. They, they get, I get the privilege to talk to people like yourself. And it's really like I just try and learn as much as I can and hence the, you know, some of the questions I might ask. But I can assure you from listening today, I reckon one of the biggest insights that I've got is your relationship with power. And, and probably you must have come across a lot of people, not that there's abuse of power, but there's, um, or sometimes even just um, that they, who they think they are because they're in a certain position, um, it, they think they have excess power to use, which actually dis, it's a disservice. And I think that's one of the things about great leadership um, because more and more power comes with that role. But the less that you're trying to force yourself over someone else, you don't seem to have any kind of, I, I don't know. I mean, we've just met for the first time and we're talking, but it doesn't seem like that you've ever abused that or you, you're, you understand that. It's kind of, it seems a bit automatic for you that you never, you just take your, your authority and you, you do what you need to do. Is that, uh, do they teach that in the army or do, is that something that you just feel like you naturally kind of yeah. um, you know, start demonstrated? I, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, it is certainly a learned attitude. Uh, nobody, uh, uh, so imagine a kid at school who's a, either a, 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 a mega brain or an, a genius athlete uh, and they get a profile in the school and so they, there's a swagger. There's an intellectual swagger or an apparent physical swagger, and they're regarded very highly by their comrades. So uh, they start to uh, have learned behaviour. In the military, uh, you uh, get taught to be competent in a certain set of skills and told about your responsibilities as a leader, which you are supposed to demonstrate when you are in a leadership position. And... Uh, you do grow along those lines. You become more and more confident with more and more authority and responsibility. Um, but um, after a while, it's in, it is imbued in you to say, okay, uh, I've been led to this point. Now I've got more responsibility. I can do this. When I was, before I became a general, 
uh, and I was getting close enough to think, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll be promoted. Maybe I'll, and I'd look at generals and I'd say, I can do that. I can do that. If they put the new rank on my shoulder, I can do that. So as we went to, uh, the one time when I thought, get your thinking cap on uh, well and truly was when I left the army and I went on to a listed company board. And I realised that I was a caretaker of the owners, the shareholders. And I thought, uh, uh, what, what do I bring to the party? Well, I bring some leadership and some experience with large entities, uh, but I don't bring balance sheets because the military, uh, generals aren't, aren't asked to be sort of doing the balance sheet, uh, but I, I would bring how a large uh, uh, enterprise works, uh, safety, that sort of stuff. But I don't bring anything to do with the market. I don't even uh, bring corporate governance uh, uh, a la the ASX and ASIC. I, I have to learn that. So, boy, oh, boy, did I have a long... But nine years on the board of Qantas, I learned so much. And that added to my confidence when I became Governor-General. You know, Tony, I reckon I might have been the first person directly out of the business environment to become Governor-General. Admittedly, I still had training wheels on, only nine years a business person, but so much better than going straight from the military to being Governor-General. Because I now understood poor old, you know, private enterprise in Australia and, you know, regulations and the, the ups and downs and, you know, governments that don't agree with them and all that sort of thing. I, I sort of got that. Mm. Oh, boy, we, we could talk. Well, I certainly could uh, talk with you for, for hours. Unfortunately, Sir Peter, we've, we've got a limited amount of time. And, uh, and I think for those that have been listening, you probably get a sense that if you buy um, General Sir Peter Cosgrove a memoir, you shouldn't have joined dot, dot, dot. Um, that you can tell that there's a lot more to to this man and he's going to share a lot more with you about about his journey and what, what he's accomplished. Before we before we kind of have to close off, is there anything that maybe we haven't talked about and you thought, oh, I wish we would, you know, I really want to share this with someone, with the, the people that are listening um, or or anything that we've touched on today that's kind of stimulated, oh, that, that was a good point uh, before we end up? Yes. I'd just like to say that one of the great joys of life is our beautiful, beautiful language. Spoken, heard, written. And I think anybody who is wanting to write a book or read a book ought to think of this part. Isn't it lovely when you can, no matter where you are, what time of the day it is, you can disappear into the pages of a good book. Every time I wrote a word for this book that uh, is now with Utopia, uh, Booktopia, I'm sorry, I called you Utopia then, Booktopia. It, uh, every time you get a book from Booktopia, let's, you should hope that you can disappear into the pages of that and emerge refreshed and inspired by, hopefully, uh, the attractive language and the story. So... That's been my guiding principle. I hope it works. Absolutely. If you write a book, uh, your words become immortal. They never, they can never be um, taken away from us. So congratulations on everything that you've accomplished and, and also on your book. 
It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our program today and may you sell thousands, tens of thousands of copies. All Thank the best. you very much in, indeed, Tony. The enjoyment for me was in creating the book and I'm hoping to uh, extend that enjoyment to some others, but I'm so delighted to have joined you on your, uh, your podcast today. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au